0: All right, uh, welcome to another episode of ICU Doc Talk. Thanks for joining me again this week. Today, I'm going to dive a little bit more into some uh, some medicine topics. Um, I know sometimes I do, so this is probably geared more towards a medical audience. However, you you may still like this uh, if you're not, you know, if you're non-medical, part of the non-medical public. Um, But I I just know when I do some of these episodes that are a little more medical heavy, I do get a lot of feedback that people very, very much like them. So listen a little bit. Uh, but you know, bounce out of this anytime you want, but I, I, I'm going to be talking about an extremely important topic today that is in critical care that is not always widely known. Um, and it's, it's an unbelievably important topic that helps reduce mortality, helps reduce length of stay and, and a whole host of other things. And it's backed by extremely good evidence. Uh, so today I'm going to be talking about ICU liberation, which is a term that is a, is a collection of, of interventions that we do to liberate people from the ICU. I think one thing that needs to be that that a lot of people don't understand and the medical public doesn't understand even a lot of medical non medical public and even a lot of people in medicine is that the ICU is a dangerous place to be It's not a good place for your body. It's not natural to be in the ICU. It's not natural to be there. Your sleep wake cycle is completely deranged thrown out of whack because we wake you up constantly we get labs uh you have devices in you you have plastic in you you have medications that are not that are synthetic that are not natural in you you are not comfortable you're not at home you're in an uncomfortable bed there's alarms there's beeping there are unfamiliar people constantly in and out of your room nothing about it is natural and nothing about it is good for you the reason this i bring this up is oftentimes you'll get i'll get other medical providers other doctors that want their patients to come to the ICU when they really don't need to come to the ICU and that's usually my determination as the the critical care attending does a patient need critical care and one thing i like to remind particularly surgeons of like you know when they want their patients to just be watched over when they don't have any critical care needs is like the icu is not good for your patient it's not if they don't need critical care interventions they should not be in the icu they shouldn't they shouldn't so liberating so the whole point today what i'm talking about is getting people out of the icu in 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 a in a way that is safe obviously they need to be stable um, and, and not having them linger around and have these like harmful, I, we call it iatrogenic. Iatrogenic is, is, is a term for stuff that we have done. Like the medical, you know, complex has done to you. That is bad. I, that's what iatrogenesis, iatrogenic means. You know, if you get, if you get hurt during surgery, but you know, your surgeon accidentally like cuts your, an artery that they didn't mean to, that's iatrogenic harm. Um, and, and, and that's anyway. So that's what this topic is. It's extremely important getting people out of the ICU. So this is called the, this is called ICU liberation, and it's specifically there is a bundle associated with this. It's called the ABCDEF bundle. It's a critical care bundle that I'm going to get into what it is that we do um, to ensure it's a, like a checklist and interventions to get people out of the ICU in in a safe in a safe way. So let's get started with it. So so what is icu liberation it's basically it's kind of a cultural shift from the harmful strategy of sedation and restraints to an to an icu filled with patients who are actually awake more awake less sedated cognitively engaged with you mobile and then with family members that are engaged as partners with the icu team at the bedside that's the cultural shift the old school thing is sedate restrain you know family limited family time it's 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 the opposite of that Patients are liberated from the iatrogenic dangers of care that threaten her or his sense of self-worth and human dignity. ICU liberation can also help mitigate post-intensive care syndrome, something called PICS, which is a, also a constellation of psychological rehabilitation, physical rehabilitation um, harm that happens after being in the intensive care. It's called post-intensive care syndrome, and IC liberation can help reduce the occurrence of that. So what is, what is the bundle? What is this ABCDEF bundle? It's, you know, to get technical about it, it's an evaluation method used as an integrated multidisciplinary approach to system management during critical illness to better achieve liberation from the ICU. It has been studied in more than 20,000 patients. And this bundle, again, what I'm gonna tell you what the bundle is, it, it has demonstrated a reduction in days spent in the ICU, days spent in the hospital, a reduction in days of mechanical ventilation, being on a ventilator, being in a coma, having delirium, hospital mortality is reduced, the use of physical restraints is reduced, ICU readmissions and healthcare costs are all reduced. And basically to boil it down, what is the bundle? It's a rounding tool. You use this, you can use this bundle. You can go over it. Okay, let's go over A, B, C, D, E, F. Let's go, let's do these things as you're rounding on patients and you check them off to make sure you're to do the bundle. So what is it? Well, the, the A, B, C, D, E, F, they all stand for something. Um, so let's get into what they stand for. Now, the, it's not perfect, the people who came up with this, what the A stands for and the B stands for. Uh, so it, meaning it's not a very good mnemonic. You just, it's just something you have to kind of go over. But um, let's, let's go over what each one of these are. All right, so A is, stands for assessment, asses, assessing, pre, so assessing and managing pain. So A is about pain. For A, I usually think analgesia treating pain B is so this is this is the one that doesn't really work that well it's it's both the B stands for both both spontaneous waking trials and spontaneous breathing trials meaning every day you wake people up you see how they wake up and every day you do a, you do a breathing trial to see if they're able to come off ventilation C stands for choice choice of sedation and analgesia oh going back to B the, the way I remember B is that B stands for breathing tube try to do things that get breathing tubes out of people C is choice of sedation and analgesia. Make the correct choices of what, what are you sedating people with? What are, you, what are you giving them for pain control? Are you giving them these things? D stands for delirium. It's delirium assessment, uh, how to assess for delirium, how to prevent it, how to manage it. E is easy, it stands for exercise and early mobility. F stands for family, family at the bedside, family engagement, family empowerment. So that's the A through F bundle. Again, A is assess pain. B is b- both spontaneous awake trial and breathing trial. C is choice of sedation. D is delirium, assessing and preventing and managing. E is exercise. F is for family. Engagement and empowerment at the bedside. So that's that is the uh the bundle. And you 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 go over the A through F on every patient in the ICU, and you, you check it off. Are you doing these things? What are we doing to address these things? What are we doing to address their pain? What are we doing to address their delirium? Are we making efforts to get the breathing tube out? Are we getting them up out of bed if we can? Can we, even with a breathing tube, can we dangle their legs over the side of the bed? Can they walk around the ICU with a breathing tube in? What can we do to mobilize them? And then is family around? Are they engaging with family? In, in is family? Are we letting family come in? Are we letting them, are we participating with them and having them, uh, you know be a part of their loved ones care. That's the bundle and there's more to it. You know, there's more details But that is the bundle. that's you implement these things and the idea is that if you implement all of these things You will liberate someone from the ICU quicker faster and you'll reduce the mortality So let's talk about a little bit of data With this with this a through f bundle. Does it work? So I won't get too much into the weeds with data, but I do I, I'm gonna go over a couple of trials and things that, and, and results of this bundle. So there was a 2019 study with uh, 15,000 adults with at least one ICU day. It was prospective, multi center, it was a cohort study from a national quality improvement collaborative. It was over 68 academic, community, and federal ICUs, uh, and it was collected over about a 20 month period. This is a study from uh, Uh, Last name, the first author is Pun, P-U-N-B-T, and it's called uh, Caring for Critically Ill Patients with the ABCDF Bundle, Results of the ICU Liberation Collaborative. So you can look that up. So just to give you some quick and dirty results from this, so from doing this, again, this is about 15,000 patients. So there was a, a dramatic decrease in days of mechanical ventilation, there was a decrease in days of sedation, obviously. There's a decrease in days of delirium. There was a decrease in the, how, how much restraints were used, like physical restraints. There was a decrease in ICU admission, ICU readmission, um, and a decrease in death, and an increase in hospital discharge. This, it had a hazard ratio of 0.32 for death, meaning there was less, less death. What interesting thing is pain went up when you implement this bundle, the A3F bundle, pain went up. Uh, that is very likely because pain is being more accurately recorded when you implement the bundle. What's also interesting is that it hap- when you implement this bundle, it happens in a dose-dependent manner, meaning the more you implement it, the more results you have. So the more you implement it, the, more, the better IC discharge, the better hospital discharge, the less death in a dose-dependent manner, meaning the more... The more patients you enroll and you do it the more you have it which is always a strong indicator that something is real that something really is happening um another there's another study where just doing a daily so s-a-t-s-b-t that spontaneous awake trial spontaneous breathing trial uh, another patient with three uh study with 300 patients if you did this daily and you just assess you interrogate uh, do they wake up? Can you get the breathing tube out without even, maybe even taking the breathing tube out? Just assessing, you get three days less of mechanical ventilation. Um, in my dream world, you know, as an ICU attending, here's my dream: is, and I've seen some functions, some ICUs function this way, that while I'm, I come in and I say I'm on the day, and I am looking up patients' charts, and I'm familiarizing myself with all the data for the day for that patient. That my dream world is in a respiratory therapist comes up to me and they say doctor we me and the bedside nurse we just did a sat and an SBT on this patient and they passed should we extubate and i would say and i would consider the patient and see if they have any contraindications for extubation and i would say yes take the breathing tube out extubate them um so Oftentimes we wait till rounds, not not just at the institution my am at, but other institutions. You know, oftentimes it's like, oh, we have to have the go ahead. We have to actually. We we don't even get till it's only on rounding that we say, okay, let's perform an SAT and SBT, and then it gets all this stuff gets pushed later in the day. Here's my point: is these things, these things should be automated out. These the, the the this A3F bundle gives respiratory therapists and and the bedside nurse and pharmacists autonomy to perform these things on their own. Um, to then assess and then get a, you know the doctor's input later if we should you know follow through with these things. Another study of 300 patients, there was ICU discharge was three days earlier, and ho- overall hospital discharge was four days earlier with implementing this bundle. Another study of 5,000 patients, uh, 5,000 uh, patients on mechanical ventilations, they had 2.4 days less of mechanical ventilation, they had 3.0 days less in the ICU when implementing this bundle. The the ABCDF a, bundle. Another study of 6,000 patients. For every 10% increase in bundle compliance, there was a 7% increase in survival. Again, dose-dependent manner. The more you dose something and the more uh, benefit you have, it's usually something real that is that is statistically significant and is and is not just noise. Um, the A through F bundle saves money. There is a, a pharmacy initiative, a collaborative initiative, uh, uh, in another study where they used this, they used an order set if this was a pharmacist driven directed sedation management, they had a one point two million dollar in direct hospital savings and one hundred and eighty two thousand dollar in drug cost. The team estimated that a total net impact was seven point two million dollars in one year from implementing this bundle, which makes sense. You sedate people less, you use less medication that saves money All right so this saves money so here 's the thing, and here 's one of the reasons I am talking about this in this podcast. Uh, this this bundle, this A through F ICU liberation, the implementation rate is low. There was a survey of 1,500 intensivists in 47 countries. Only 57% had implemented this bundle. 83%, 83% used a scale to evaluate pain, right? So that means almost 20% weren't even using a scale to evaluate a patient's pain. The SAT and SBT, the spontaneous awake trial and breathing trial, were only done in 66 and 67%. of the the survey. Again, this is a survey. Delirium monitoring monitoring was only done in 70%. 69% had no mobility team, and only 34% had 24-7 family visitation. This was before COVID, so that, you know, there's 24-7 family visitation is now a little less in the age of the COVID pandemic. So how do we implement this bundle? Well, we need to educate, right? That's why I'm talking about this. If you're a healthcare provider, you now know about this, okay, if you haven't heard about it before. Uh, you need to form a multidisciplinary team because it takes a multidisciplinary team and collaborative effort to implement all of this bundle uh, You need to have leadership engagement in this you need to implement the bundle. you need to audit it You need to get feedback see what's working and then it needs to be implemented in multidisciplinary rounds So the what are common obstacles to implementing this bundle? well, there's lack or incomplete multidisciplinary rounding Lack of staff buy-in, like low perceived importance, like, oh, this doesn't matter. This is just another thing that we need to put in that doesn't. No, no, this is backed by extremely good data. It costs nothing. <laughs> this, this doesn't cost anything. You're not paying anybody to do this. There's not, this doesn't involve a pharmaceutical company or any medical device, nothing. Um, and it dr- demonstrably reduces mortality in all of these things. Um There's a lack of accountability when implementing these things. There's a lack of protocolization. There's high staff turnover. There's competing priorities. There's, you know, a perceived increase in workload burden that's going to make your job harder, which it doesn't. Um, So there was a study that looked at a focus group of nurses and respiratory therapists and occupational therapists and physical therapists. They conducted to assess the perception and the execution of the ABCDF bundle. And what their feedback was that there was... Problems with the physical environment, the, the, the task burden, provider attitudes, the patient characteristics were noted to influence the bundle execution. Um, and there was a difficulty in coordinating and implementing early mobility. Uh, the number of disciplines required to perform an activity and individual component complexity was also reported to influence the bundle. Nurses repeatedly described challenges with coordinating, coordinating care across discipline so this must be you know this has to be bottom up and it has to be top down everybody has to have buy-in there was a study that tried to try to identify obstacles in five icus um and a couple of them were fear of adverse events with patients communication challenges knowledge deficits workload concerns just all the stuff i'm talking about documentation burden which of course is is a burden Um, a quote from the study was despite these challenges Participants believed implementation ultimately benefited patients, improved interdisciplinary communication, and empowered nurses and other ICU team members. That's another huge point, like I said. This empowers nurses. It empowers respiratory therapists. It empowers physical therapists. It, it, you, you get away from that paternalistic, you know, the doctor, oh, we have to, what does the doctor say? We have to do doctor. And it, it protocolizes and, and then also gives autonomy to uh, other providers, which is another great thing. So there's also like perceived potential harm with implementing the A3F bundle. People fear about accidental device removal, like endotracheal tubes or ECMO cannula, which of course is a legitimate fear. Falls, hemodynamic instability. So fears can be elevated for even for you know you know for vulnerable populations like severely ill, neurological injury, mechanical ventilation, obesity. Uh, patients have open abdomens. But oftentimes these are the exact patients for whom the bundle may be the most beneficial because these are the patients with the highest chance of not getting out of bed and the highest chance of mortality. There's robust literature describing safe bundle in thousands of critically ill patients, including patients on ECMO. Initial implementation on more stable patients can help overcome the challenge of this you know, perceived harm. So another big you know, obstacle like I've talked about is provider reluctancy to implement this. Doctors have a desire for autonomy often. There's a lack of familiarity with this bundle. The bundle adoption can be particularly challenging when there is practice inconsistency and uncertainty regarding ICU roles. And then, you know, coordination is really challenging. There's, a, there's a, another study, 6,000 patients, seven community hospitals. They successfully implement, implement, implemented the bundle. For every 10% increase in partial bundle compliance, patient had a 15% hospital survival. Here's a great quote from this study. The key component for improved patient outcomes were the interprofessional team model, the training provided to the unit-based teams, and the opportunity given to team members to practice and embed the behaviors of collaboration and shared decision-making into everyday practice. Shared decision-making. So let's just talk about team roles. What, what, different, what the different uh, people on the ICU team, what the role is in implementing and doing this bundle of getting patients out of the ICU in a safe way. So there's the provider, right, either the, you know, the physician or the the nurse practitioner or the physician assistant. The provider leading rounds can eliminate the traditional hierarchical structure of ICU rounds, and they can often prevent other disciplines from contributing optimally. The purpose of rounding, in my opinion, is not for the provider like me to dictate care. Now, just for me to have my plan and say and this is what we're doing, the the point of rounding is consensus decision-making, which can be accomplished by asking each discipline for input and recommendations for care during rounds and facilitating a team-based discussion to evaluate suggestions. And that's what the provider can do. The bedside nurse typically spends more time providing direct patient care than any other member, right? The bedside nurse has a unique perspective and insight into the patient's current condition, Their treatment responses, their care preferences, and their outcome expectations. The bedside nurse is one of the most powerful advocates for a patient. That's why I always listen to every word that they have and every concern that they have. They're responsible for performing a lot of key elements of this bundle, right? Assessing pain, sedation, delirium, sleep sleep quality, optimizing sedation. So they're in charge of coordinating and timing the SAT, which is the spontaneous awake trial, and an SBT, spontaneous breathing trial, and mobilization with respiratory therapy and, and PT and OT. Pharmacists, they they uh, you know rounding with pharmacy can reduce adverse drug reactions, lower ICU mortality, improve ICU, ICU care delivery, and reduce costs overall. Rounding with pharmacists in ICU is a, extremely important, and every ICU should have a, a pharmacist rounding. They reconcile meds they optimize drug dosing they eliminate unnecessary costly or high-risk medications they just they're they're brilliant they're brilliant and they're often super users of of this a3f bundle all pharmacists know all about this they're, they they uh their knowledge base about this icu liberation a3f bundle they, they they're typically they they all know about this what i'm talking about respiratory therapists they both they they work both independently and they partner with the intensivist to determine me- mechanical ventilation strategies, oxygen delivery systems, pulmonary treatments. They participate in rounds. They help ensure that respiratory care data are accurately reported. Um, they're responsible for screening the patient and coordinating the SAT and SBT with bedside nurse and discussing it, that with the, the intensivist, right? Just like I said, that's my dream. The RT and the bedside nurse work together, and they perform an SAT and SBT without even talking with me. Uh, and they say, hey, they p- patient pass, patient fail. Um The RT can help identify patients at high risk for failed intubations. They can suggest bridging strategies that can prevent reintubation. They play a key role in mobilization of mechanically ventilated patients. Physical therapy and occupational therapy, obviously, they facilitate early mo- patient mobilization. They help evaluate patients' pre-hospital mobility and functionality to create realistic mobility goals. They help overcome mobilization barriers. They educate, they train. Low PT staffing um, that preclude their daily participation in rounds may be a significant barrier for mobilization efforts in all patients. So that's I mean, so that's the bundle summed up, right? Just going through it. A, B, C, D through F. Assess the patient's pain. B is both spontaneous and spontaneous awake trial, spontaneous breathing trial, C is choice of sedation, D is delirium assessment prevention and management. E is exercise, F is family engagement and empowerment. You can go through this bundle on every single patient, and this will reduce, that's the take home. This bundle reduces ICU mortality, ICU length of stay, days of mechanical ventilation, it reduces delirium. All these things that are bad for patients, it helps reduce. So to implement this into your ICU, obviously you need to you know it needs to be a leadership decision and everybody needs buy in and everybody needs to know that this is help that this helps and it is highly highly validated this bundle will help save lives and it does it does and i know that not every icu everywhere is implementing this bundle i know that for a fact and i just wanted to get a little bit more into a couple of the details of the different parts of this bundle um so assessing for pain, right? There's different, there's different, there's like CPOT score or there's the pain, you know, visual analog score. Pain, pain is bad for healing. Pain is bad for, okay, well, number one, pain is bad because people suffer, right? So that's, that should be number one. But pain is bad for healing. Pain is bad for mobility. Pain is bad for getting people out of bed. Pain is bad for getting people out of the ICU. Pain is bad for getting people out of the hospital. And you cannot really treat pain unless you're assessing pain. Some people don't vocalize their pain, or they don't appear like they're in pain. And they are in pain, so you have to, you have to find out. And there are different validated ways of doing that. CPOT, it's a fine score. Um, and then when it comes to spontaneous awake trials and breathing trials, so some patients don't always meet that, right? Neurological patients, if you do a spontaneous awake trial, you turn everything off. 48 hours, they're still just sitting there, totally comatose. Sometimes you have to make exceptions, and you have to just take the breathing tube out and see how the patient does. This is all very patient specific and specific to ICUs and this is at the discretion of the providers what you know what to do. Spontaneous breathing trials, you know, they typically involve uh having patients on low ventilatory support like low pressure, low peep, you know, something like 5 over 5 pressure support, 5 over 5. There's many ways of doing this. A you know, a reasonably low FiO2, 40% it's usually, you know, no higher than that. Uh and then the respiratory rate is low um and they're not hemodynamically unstable uh, and they're not super agitated when you turn their vent settings down so you do those things turn their vent settings down and then even if they do need a little bit more pressure support or they do need a little bit higher refer to it's certainly reasonable to extubate someone to BiPAP or high flow nasal cannula depending on the situation to liberate them from their from the breathing tube i extubate people to BiPAP or or high flow nasal cannula all the time Um, and then wean from there that can help people get people off when it comes to C, the choice of sedation and analgesia, one of the main things to know is that benzodiazepines aggravate and cause delirium and, and can lead to worse outcomes. So one of the main things I think about is, is this person on a benzo? Should they not be on that benzo? Should we take them off the benzo? Prestidex, the dexmedetotomy, dexmedetomidine is a very good uh, sedative. It has a lot of positive outcomes when it comes to delirium uh, with a, uh, that's coming out in a lot of recent literature. Really good choice of sedation analgesia. Delirium, so there's a couple things. So for D, there's a couple things that, you know, there's things that are deliriogenic, meaning they cause delirium, right? So one of those is pain. Pain causes delirium. Being dis- uh, Having your day-night cycle flipped, right? If you're not sleeping at night uh, and you're sleeping during the day or whatever, when that's flipped around, people get disoriented. They get delirious. They don't know what's going on. Um, uh, not having family around can cause delirium, not having glasses on their eyes when they can't see, not having their, their uh, hearing aids in if they need them. All these things disorient people and can make them delirious. So there are things you can do to put in del- you know, delirogenic precautions to prevent delirium. Um, and then getting people up, moving around, always it helps delirium a lot. Maybe that's just as little bit as dangling their legs over the side of the bed or getting them up in a chair. Very, very important for delirium and then encouraging good sleep hygiene and sometimes we have to give sleep aids right melatonin is is great fairly benign but there's other things that we have to give for sleep in the ICU like seroquil, which is a you know a, a traditionally antipsychotic drug but we use that all the time for sedation um, to help with sleep yeah uh, olanzapine uh you know trazodone there's there's a lot of things again avoid benzos as best you can but sometimes you do have to use benzos in the ICUs for for patient-specific conditions, and, and I have no problem with that, but you should avoid them if you can't, because they can cause delirium, and they, and there's some association with worse outcomes. Anyway, I think the whole, the whole point of what I'm trying to say is, so so the take-home here is this, you know, to pre- if you haven't heard of this, ICU liberation, ABCDF bundle is highly validated. It gets people out of the ICU. It saves lives. I think the thing to keep in mind, uh, well, okay, let me just give you an example of what I want to say. So oftentimes I get surgeons that'll call me and they, you know, their patients in the operating room, they're like, I'm worried about this patient and I, I want to watch the patient in the ICU overnight. And I'll be like, okay, what are their ICU needs? And they're like, well, we're just worried they're going to get worse. And I was like, well, what are their ICU needs? Well, so, ah, no, we're just worried. Oh, we, you know, busted up a, a kidney stone and, you know, you can get septic with that. We just want to watch it. So when I have a surgeon call me and tell, ask me that, I say, no, I say, no, this patient's not coming to the ICU. There's no ICU needs. And the reason I bring up the story is I'm just trying to bring home the point. The ICU is not good for you. It's not good for a patient. Uh, you, If you don't need to be in the ICU, you should not be there. Someone can be monitored perfectly fine on the wards or you know the medical floor or surgical floor. You know, you can have sepsis and not be in the ICU. Just having sepsis is not an ICU indication. Septic shock, you know, decompensated septic shock, sure. But you can detect sepsis and treat sepsis, you know, on the floor. It's not a problem. The ICU, we poke and prod you all night long. We get your vitals. There's alarm fatigue. You get delirious. It's just, you can get other infections. It's not, if you don't need to be in the ICU, you should get out of the ICU. It's not a place to just, yeah, you have more eyes on you. And it's it's, if you have to be there, you have to be there. If someone's unstable, they should be watched right And you have higher level of care and if you need that if you no longer need high level of care you should leave the icu so when every day on rounds you know i'm always thinking about patients does this patient need to be in the icu if not send them out we're they're, we're sending this patient out of the icu all their vital signs are stable you should get out of the icu so you know whether you're medical or not medical and you're listening to this if you have a loved one that's in the icu or whatever it's not a safe place for here for you to be if you don't need to be there you should leave the icu and that's one of the points of ICU liberation is to uh to reduce our interventions that may be unnecessary, right? Cuz we I think we do unnecessary stuff all the time in good, with good intentions, you know, with good faith we try. But reduce the iatrogenic harm that we may be causing you or your loved one. Uh, you know, get our get our paranoid brains away from you and uh get out of the ICU, you know. We we love having you. And we love to treat you and we love to see you get better. But if you don't need us, you should leave. You know, that, that's that's all there is to that. And this ICU liberation is something that is designed to get people out of the ICU in a safe way. And it has great impact, great benefit, and reduces mortality. And it gets people out of the hospital sooner. So there you have it. So this is ICU liberation, ADC, ADCB, <laughs> ABCDF bundle. Go look it up. Go read more about it. There's a ton of literature about it. I'm not making this stuff up. All right, let's move on to a book this week. Um, I'm <clears throat> going to talk about something that has nothing to do with what I was just talking about. Uh, it's called The Right, The Hundred-Year War of American Conservatism by Matthew Continetti. Uh, which he's a, this guy, uh, this writer, He's a, he's been a conservative writer for a long time, for years. And then I really enjoyed this book. It came out April 19th, 2022. Um and I thought it was pretty good. It's it's a, basically a history of the power that conservative movement had in America and then the exile of conservatives during during FDR, you know, from like 1940 to like 1970. And then coming back in and coming back with so much power and so much force that it dragged the entire political spectrum to the right ever since the 1980s till the current day. So it's it's mostly an objective historical account of, you know, American conservatism, movement that started, and this account starts with Harding, President Harding, and it ends on you know January 6, 2021 with the insurrection, we get a pretty disimpassioned analysis of how the conservative movement in the United States went from the status quo before the Great Depression and then went into cultural exile for basically decades and then roared back when conditions were finally ripe during the 1970s. The book starts with a quick overview of how Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover basically maintained an isolation and protectionist order, along with their pal Andrew Mellon as the secretary of treasury, who was the secretary of treasury during all of those presidents. <laughs> Andrew Mellon, you should just go read about Andrew Mellon all on your own. That guy was a, uh, you know, a capitalist baron with vast monopolies that influenced a ton of stuff. Anyway, the winds obviously changed after the Great Depression with the ushering in of a more social dem- you know, democracy model with FDR and the New Deal era policies. The American left enjoyed cultural and political power for decades after that, with conservatism mostly existing as a cultural fringe ethos that sprouted up in different forms over the following decades with various factions, which is really interesting, right? Because today, we we conservatism is so much stronger than it was uh, during that time. You know, pe- people, there's this persecution complex, I think, with conservative American conser- conservatives, you know they constantly think they're being persecuted by the left. It's like do you have, do you, have un, do you have any idea how culturally powerful your you know the conservative fact movement is today? You know I mean it's crazy. Uh, and then there was like a neoconservative comeback with Eisenhower. Which there was almost this kind of fracturing for for the right because there was so much antipathy toward the president from the conservative right. And then this book spends a lot of time on the National Review, the publication, and the John Birch Society which became kind of different camps of conservatism, with the JBS, the John Birch, Birch Society, being almost ostracized faction due to its, its outright bigotry and anti-Semitism. Continentity, the author, then he cast the JBS as like an anti-elite faction and basically a conspiracy theory hatchery. And then there was the offering of Barry Goldwater as a presidential candidate, uh, which wasn't, you know, and he obviously never became president, but that wasn't necessarily a failure on the right because he helped bring back the more far-right libertarian ideals back to mainstream. Whenever there was a liberal policy or presidential feathers, the right enjoyed more cultural power that started to consolidate in the 1970s where conservatism began to become a little more unified and popular over the backdrop of the perceived cultural chaos and moral failings of the left during that time, which sounds familiar, right? Same same stuff is happening right now. Ronald Reagan brought together neoconservatives with libertarian ideology and made being anti-communist cool again in the 80s for me it was during his administration where the most potent neoliberal policies were started and continued from then with every american president to current day right whether you're whether they've been democrat or or republican since ronald reagan every american president has basically had neoliberal economic policy so now, with the entire American political spectrum dragged to the right, Democrats like Bill Clinton, they implemented some of the most harsh social austerity measures in recent history, as well as repealing the Glass-Steagall Act, which was likely largely responsible for the um, uh, 2008 financial crisis. If it wasn't for Clinton's scandal, he would have pri- probably privatized Social Security with Green- with Gingrich. Anyway, and then so you enter Trump, who spouted a lot of the same anti-elite conservative ideology that has been coming from the right for decades except you remove the intellectualism uh that was was there right there was a conservative intellectualism was a thing you remove that and then you add a populist twist and now you have trumpism Uh, what you get is something much closer to nihilism for the sake of power rather than an actual ideology the author is certainly no fan of trump populism and he seems to lament the demagogic turn that has taken place in American conservatism. Only toward the end of the book does the author valorize American conservatism as some sort, of, some sort of like bastion of American ideals and preserving constitutionalism. I didn't really agree with him there because he doesn't really explain what he means. He just kind of states at face value that conservatism is, is responsible for much good in American history. My response to that is conservatism is what it is right now with all of its toxic anti-intellectualism and populist nativism this is conservatism trying to argue otherwise is basically using the no true scotsman fallacy which i think i've talked about before the no true stock uh, scotsman's fallacy is you know someone says no no true scotsman puts sugar in their tea and someone says well my uncle's a scotsman and he and he puts sugar in his tea and then the, the person responds well no true scotsman does it meaning like oh there's it's you know always always chasing the pure ideology and if it's not the pure ideology then we're not talking about the same thing that's that's no true scotsman fallacy in my opinion as you know if you've listened to my podcast you know i i don't care about the virtues of an espoused ideology impact is the only thing that matters and the current impact of american conservatism right now is a net negative for various reasons that i won't get into right now but you can probably guess what i would say what i learned from this book is that American conservatism is not a monolithic entity like it can seem. It can be just as fractured as the left. However, there are a few main driving forces that have formed American conservatism into what it is right now. And those are anti-communism, moral piety, trust in free market solutions, and Christian nationalism, which together function as social Darwinism. These principles continually guide and shape American conservatism. That is American conservatism, what I just said. Anti-communism, moral piety and, author- and authoritarianism, like right? moral authority, trust in free market solutions, Christian nationalism, and all that together is social Darwinism. I recommend this to all readers, this book, regardless of your political ideology. It's mostly a very good and objective historical accounting of the last 100 years of American conservatism. A great companion piece to this book is another book I've talked about my, on my podcast called uh, Goliath the 100-year war of monopoly power and democracy by uh Matt Stoller. Very good book and I've I've gone over that book in my podcast. Anyway, so there you have it. That's called The Right: The 100-Year War for American Conservatism by Continetti, uh which I I highly recommend. Check it out. All right. Uh let's answer a quick question. This is from TikTok. This is by from Jamie Nic one two one seven. The question is: When you put someone under anesthesia, do they still have regularly involuntary do they still have regular involuntary movements? For examples, for example, sneezing. Um, so it's a great question. The short answer is no, they don't. So, we a- anesthesia right. There's a couple things that we do. All right, it's not just like a button you press and you give give drug whatever. So we sedate the body right so you know we give sedatives that make the mind not aware um now you still have reflexes that are intact so i've talked about this before right your spinal cord is still responsible is still active and has reflexes so you know if a surgeon cuts into your body your body doesn't like that and tr- can try to swat the surgeon you know the surgeon away now there we d- typically give enough sedation where now the body really doesn't even care and is so like insensate like doesn't doesn't even register that that's happening, um, but it, but it still can happen, and sometimes that just manifests as like the the person's you know the patient bucking on the bed, you know, just kind of like uh, uh, like up and down, not necessarily purposeful movements. So so involuntary movements like that certainly can still be intact, um, but we also can go an extra step. We we can paralyze your body with with medications that specifically paralyze, like they make it so your skeletal muscle cannot move, like you literally cannot move. So we can a- completely abolish all of those involuntary reflexes. Sneezing certainly does not happen during anesthesia. That, I've never seen that. That reflex is gone. That's certainly gone. S- something like sneezing, um, hiccups, probably you know not don't don't happen either. Hiccups can happen after anesthesia, but again, the diaphragm is a skeletal muscle, and we can paralyze that. So I guess the short answer to this is we have control over that. Um, and it depends on how deep, uh, someone's body needs to be depending on the procedure, but typically we can completely if we want to, we can completely get rid of all of those reflexes and just that body psh, is completely, you know, stand still. All right. Anyway, that'll be it for this week. Thanks for listening. Um, uh, email me at ICU, Dr. Ecmo at gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments or want me to talk about any topics, give me, check me out on TikTok icudoc ICU doc is our ICU doctors, my handle. And uh, thanks for listening. Give a review if you haven't already. Appreciate it.